Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from Double Treasure, written by Clarence Buddington Kelland. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Buried pirate treasure and a wisecracking heroine lead to romance, adventure, and murder in Prohibition-era Long Island. Wisecracking Jane Teach had pirate blood, a take-charge attitude, and a penchant for sticking her nose in the wrong places. Sober-minded Bill Popple was from one of Long Island's first families, a conservative-minded young man who walked the straight and narrow. When they met, it was loathing at first sight, definitely not a match made in heaven. But with six people trying to kill them over a dead bootlegger's lost fortune and a pirate's treasure secretly buried 300 years ago, they both needed each other. First Bill Popple, the muscular, serious-minded research student, unearths information which makes the odds high in favor of pirate gold being hidden long ago on what is now Hartman's property. Then Jane Teach, the streamlined girl of ready wit, who seems to know more than Bill does about almost everything, suggests that there may not be one treasure but two, the first one part of her ancestors' lost loot, the second a bootlegger's ill-gotten gains. Next, Jane and Bill discover a corpse lying on a beach near Oxbow Bay with gold pieces sunk into its eye sockets. Soon the pair find themselves up to their necks in mystery and dark doings involving the heterogeneous group of strangers who have appeared suddenly in town to wait and watch for... what? From then on, Jane and Bill never experience a dull moment. How they extricate themselves and at the same time solve two deep mysteries adds up to an absorbing novel of skullduggery and sudden death in which excitement and romance mount to an increasingly high pitch and culminate in a wholly satisfying climax. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from Double Treasure. Chapter 1 The nose of our little porpoise nuzzled the gravel of the beach at the end of Oxbow Bay, just at the right of the creek that winds inward through the salt marsh, and John Sandys, who was in the bow, splashed out into the water and hauled us farther in. Now Ryder, bronze from head to toe, wearing a scanty white bathing suit, was next, and I, with some difficulty, got to my feet and handed over the lunch basket. My legs still gave me some trouble, stiffening after I had been seated for some time, and the great scar on John's right side marred his splendid body. But we were nearing perfect health every day. There is no better place in the world to recover from wounds than in a small sailing craft. We started across the gravel to the meadow, heading for a spot on the hillside where we used to camp together when we were children. For some reason, Nell had wanted to go there today, and we generally did what Nell wanted us to do. Hardly had we set foot ashore when a man got up out of the tall grass and reeds at our right, and another appeared over at the left and they converged upon us, 
Where, asked the first man discourteously, do you think you're going? Up there under the locusts, John said carelessly. He was not used to having his movements questioned in that locality, where his family had lived for more than 250 years, as indeed had all our families. Who are you? he asked curtly. You're a stranger around here. The man, larger than John, but not approaching my great size, stepped toward us belligerently, and the second man started to hurry in our direction, as if he anticipated trouble. Get back into the tub, said the first man, and scram. John placed the lunch basket on the sand and straightened up. What goes on around here? He asked in some bewilderment, for none of us ever before had been ordered off any man's land in this township. Never mind what goes on. You're on private property. Beat it. Now, now, John spoke softly. If you're going to be technical, he said, we're not on anyone's land. Not until we cross high watermark. We're hired, said the second man, to keep off trespassers. On your way, John grinned at Nell. Were you ever a trespasser before? He asked. Never, she said. Who hired you? John asked the man. Mr. Hartman was the answer. Well, well, John said. I heard something about this property changing hands. So Mr. Hartman doesn't want visitors. He lifted his shoulders. The way he's starting out, he isn't likely to have many. Not while we're here, said the first man. It looks, said Nell, as if this Mr. Hartman was against the good neighbor policy. John stooped and picked up the lunch basket. Our respects to Mr. Hartman, he said to the men. Tell them he can withdraw his guards and save himself that expense. When the fame of his hospitality spreads, as it will, he won't be exactly overrun by his neighbors. That, said one of the men, will suit him good. We shoved Porpoise off the beach and sailed away. What? asked John presently. Do you think of that? It's a bit for popularity, Nell answered. Where is the fellow, anyhow? John wondered. We probably will never know, Nell answered. We sailed down the bay, past our little town of Port Franklin, and tacked back along the shorefront of the Sandys estate. Through the trees we could see the pointed turrets of the big house and the green lawns and the boxwoods. We tacked again, making towards my father's little shipyard where, before the war, he had done a satisfactory business in yacht repairs and the storage of pleasure craft for the winters. It was there that, long before the war, the three of us had built the porpoise under father's directing eye. You could read the weather-beaten sign over the pier beside the rails of the ways, William Popple, Shipyard. My name was also William Popple, though most folks called me tiny on account of my bulk. We lunged on the point among the great boulders, and then, the tide being high, we anchored out by the spindle and fished for blackfish. Without any luck, our new neighbor was bothering John. You know, he said, we Sandys used to own that land. 
up to a hundred years ago. One of my great-great-grandfathers sold it for some reason. He frowned at the water. Guards, he said. Imagine guards patrolling a man's land in the neck of the woods. Imagine it. And armed guards, too. Does he think we natives are cannibals? Maybe, Nell said. He hasn't heard that pirates are extinct. She looked out at the bare, grim rock in the sound where, generations ago, there had been reared a gibbet from which had dangled the bodies of captured buccaneers. People, said John, who want to be very private usually have something to hide. Forget it, said I. We'll have supper tonight at our house. Mother's got some deep-dish gooseberry pies. And there's a good picture in town. We, John and Nell and I, were, as you might say, inmates of three houses and parts of three families. Since childhood, we had had the same place with its liveried servants the farmhouse back from shore. Nell's force had been trapped farmers in a sizable way from time immemorial. And, of course, we had been in and out of the popples' little house, and the shipyard had been our playground, just as if we were all children of my parents. It had been that way ever since I can remember. None of us saw Mr. Henry Hartman in the flesh for some ten days, and then we did not meet him socially, but rather observed him as a spectacle. He was a flabby sort of man with thick lips and the sort of pallid coloration that somehow repels you, as if there were something poisonous about it. He got off the 418 commuters train from New York and strutted around to the side of the station where the hackers back up to the curb. Just how it happened or what was the cause of it, we didn't see. But he became instantly embroiled in a loud voice altercation with Jimmy Bergamo, who owned and drove one of the taxis. Mr. Hartman was being very disagreeable and overbearing which is no attitude to take toward our hack drivers, who are an independent lot, descendants of our old clam diggers for the most part, with names that go far back in Long Island history. Just why Jimmy did not bop the man on the nose, I do not know. But I do know that, as a result of the argument, Hartman had to telephone for his own car to come for him, and never from that day would one of our drivers let him ride in his car. His language had not been elegant. About what you'd expect, John said when the flurry had subsided. I doubt if he'll be here long. He looks, said I, like a crooked bookmaker. I asked father, said John. He's some sort of mining promoter with international brokerage on the side. Rather an unsavory reputation. If he talks to many folks as he did to Jimmy, no wonder he needs armed guards. We became aware as the days went along that he was doing some building or renovating on his place, but we did not know what. We saw loads of material go in and workmen arrived by train, so the work must have been fairly extensive. But no local contractors or laborers were employed. And as nobody was permitted to pass his gates, there were no reports about what he was doing. Not that we were interested especially, 
But in Port Franklin, everybody knows about everybody else. And if you build a new hen coop, it is news. So we all resented Mr. Harpman and hoped he would not like our countryside. One rather curious thing we did see on an afternoon when the three of us rode some of John's saddle horses across country. We'd ridden along the dirt road that tops the low hills west of the bay and cut through the gate of old Oscar Bemis's orchard to the lowlands beyond. In the orchard, we stopped to rest and let the nags nibble the long grass when, off to our right and close to the boundary line of Hartman's land, we saw a young man. He was not aware of our presence because we were above him, concealed by the old apple trees and a hundred and fifty yards away. What's he up to? Nell asked. We watched him idly and then became more interested as he climbed into the branches of an oak and settled himself in a crotch. It was then we saw that he had binoculars swung over his shoulders. He took these out and commenced to peer at something taking place on the Hartman land. Now what? demanded John. Do you think of that? A slight touch of spine. Should we do anything about it? I asked. Not a thing, Nell said firmly. If Mr. Hartman wants privacy, let him take his own precautions. All the same, John said. I don't like it. It isn't the sort of thing we want going on around here. Always conservative, jeered Nell, who knew as well as I that conservatism was far from being one of John's attributes. So we rode along, speculating about the spy, but making no effort to identify him or to drive him away. Hartman had taken pains to show us he did not want to be a neighbor, so why should we be neighborly? True, it might be some prowler planning a job of burglary, but if so, our attitude toward the matter was more power to him. We walked our horses down to the shore and rode along the beach crossing the foot of the Harpman land below high watermark, so as to be guiltless of trespass. Inland we could hear the sound of saws and hammers, but the construction, whatever it was, was hidden from us by the trees. How's the job coming? John asked idly. Mostly dust and sorting up to now, I told him. No horse thieves or second-story men among the Sandy's ancestors? He asked, have patience, Nell said. Tiny'll dig some up. I did not answer this raillery because I was more than a little troubled by some old letters I had found. I was wondering what to do about them, for I was working for John's father, at least temporarily, while I was waiting for myself to become wholly mended. Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from Double Treasure, written by Clarence Buddington Kelland. Buried pirate treasure and a wisecracking heroine lead to romance, adventure, and murder in Prohibition-era Long Island. Wisecracking Jane Teach had pirate blood, a take-charge attitude, and a penchant for sticking her nose in the wrong places. Sober-minded Bill Popple was from one of Long Island's first families, a conservative-minded young man who walked the straight and narrow. 
When they met, it was loathing at first sight, definitely not a match made in heaven. But with six people trying to kill them over a dead bootlegger's lost fortune and a pirate's treasure secretly buried 300 years ago, they both needed each other. First Bill Popple, the muscular, serious-minded research student, unearths information which makes the odds high in favor of pirate gold being hidden long ago on what is now Hartman's property. Then Jane Teach, the streamlined girl of ready wit, who seems to know more than Bill does about almost everything, suggests that there may not be one treasure but two, the first one part of her ancestors' lost loot, the second a bootlegger's ill-gotten gains. Next, Jane and Bill discover a corpse lying on a beach near Oxbow Bay with gold pieces sunk into its eye sockets. Soon the pair find themselves up to their necks in mystery and dark doings involving the heterogeneous group of strangers who have appeared suddenly in town to wait and watch for... what? From then on, Jane and Bill never experience a dull moment. How they extricate themselves and at the same time solve two deep mysteries adds up to an absorbing novel of skullduggery and sudden death in which excitement and romance mount to an increasingly high pitch and culminate in a wholly satisfying climax. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from Double Treasure. Chapter 1 The nose of our little porpoise nuzzled the gravel of the beach at the end of Oxbow Bay, just at the right of the creek that winds inward through the salt marsh, and Jod Sandys, who was in the bow, splashed out into the water and hauled us farther in. Now Ryder, bronze from head to toe, wearing a scanty white bathing suit, was next, and I, with some difficulty, got to my feet and handed over the lunch basket. My legs still gave me some trouble, stiffening after I had been seated for some time, and the great scar on John's right side marred his splendid body. But we were nearing perfect health every day. There is no better place in the world to recover from wounds than in a small sailing craft. We started across the gravel to the meadow, heading for a spot on the hillside where we used to camp together when we were children. For some reason, Nell had wanted to go there today, and we generally did what Nell wanted us to do. Hardly had we set foot ashore when a man got up out of the tall grass and reeds at our right, and another appeared over at the left and they converged upon us. Where? asked the first man discourteously. Do you think you're going? Up there under the locusts, John said carelessly. He was not used to having his movements questioned in that locality, where his family had lived for more than 250 years, as indeed had all our families. Who are you? he asked curtly. You're a stranger around here. The man, larger than John, but not approaching my great size, stepped toward us belligerently, and the second man started to hurry in our direction, as if he anticipated trouble. Get back into the tub, said the first man, and scram. John placed the lunch basket on the sand and straightened up. What goes on around here? he asked in some bewilderment for none of us ever before had been ordered off any man's land in this township. Never mind what goes on. You're on private property. Beat it. 
Now, now, John spoke softly. If you're going to be technical, he said, we're not on anyone's land. Not until we cross high watermark. We're hired, said the second man, to keep off trespassers. On your way, John grinned at Nell. Were you ever a trespasser before? He asked. Never, she said. Who hired you? John asked the man. Mr. Hartman, was the answer. Well, well, John said. I heard something about this property changing hands. So Mr. Hartman doesn't want visitors. He lifted his shoulders. The way he's starting out, he isn't likely to have many. Not while we're here, said the first man. It looks, said Nell, as if this Mr. Hartman was against the good neighbor policy. John stooped and picked up the lunch basket. Our respects to Mr. Hartman, he said to the men. Tell them he can withdraw his guards and save himself that expense. When the fame of his hospitality spreads, as it will... He won't be exactly overrun by his neighbors. That, said one of the men, will suit him good. We shoved Porpoise off the beach and sailed away. What, asked John presently, do you think of that? It's a bit for popularity, Nell answered. Where is the fellow anyhow, John wondered. We probably will never know, Nell answered. We sailed down the bay past our little town of Port Franklin, and tacked back along the shore front of the Sandys estate. Through the trees we could see the pointed turrets of the big house and the green lawns and the boxwoods. We tacked again, making towards my father's little shipyard where, before the war, he had done a satisfactory business in yacht repairs and the storage of pleasure craft for the winters. It was there that, long before the war, the three of us had built the porpoise under father's directing eye. You could read the weather-beaten sign over the pier beside the rails of the ways, William Popple, Shipyard. My name was also William Popple, though most folks called me tiny on account of my bulk. We lunged on the point among the great boulders, and then, the tide being high, we anchored out by the spindle and fished for blackfish. Without any luck, our new neighbor was bothering John. You know, he said, we Sandys used to own that land up to a hundred years ago. One of my great-great-grandfathers sold it for some reason. He frowned at the water. Guards, he said. Imagine guards patrolling a man's land in the neck of the woods. Imagine it. And armed guards, too. Does he think we natives are cannibals? Maybe, Nell said. He hasn't heard that pirates are extinct. She looked out at the bare, grim rock in the sound where generations ago there had been reared a gibbet from which had dangled the bodies of captured buccaneers. People, said John, who want to be very private usually have something to hide. Forget it, said I. We'll have supper tonight at our house. There's some deep-dish gooseberry pies. And there's a good picture in town. We, John and Nell and I, were, as you might say, inmates of three houses and parts of three families. 
Since childhood, we had had the run of the great Sandy's place, with its liveried servants, and of the Ryder farmhouse back from the shore. Nell's forebears had been truck farmers in a sizable way from time immemorial. And, of course, we had been in and out of the Popples' little house, and the shipyard had been our playground, just as if we were all children of my parents. It had been that way ever since I can remember. None of us saw Mr. Henry Hartman in the flesh for some ten days, and then we did not meet him socially but rather observed him as a spectacle. He was a flabby sort of man with thick lips and the sort of pallid coloration that somehow repels you, as if there were something poisonous about it. He got off the 418 commuters train from New York and strutted around to the side of the station where the hackers back up to the curb. Just how it happened or what was the cause of it, we didn't see. But he became instantly embroiled in a loud voice altercation with Jimmy Bergamo, who owned and drove one of the taxis. Mr. Hartman was being very disagreeable and overbearing, which is no attitude to take toward our hack drivers, who are an independent lot, descendants of our old clam diggers for the most part, with names that go far back in Long Island history. Just why Jimmy did not bop the man on the nose, I do not know. But I do know that, as a result of the argument, Hartman had to telephone for his own car to come for him, and never from that day would one of our drivers let him ride in his car. His language had not been elegant. About what you'd expect, John said when the flurry had subsided. I doubt if he'll be here long. He looks said I, like a crooked bookmaker. I asked father, said John. He's some sort of mining promoter with international brokerage on the side. Rather an unsavory reputation. If he talks to many folks as he did to Jimmy, no wonder he needs armed guards. We became aware as the days went along that he was doing some building or renovating on his place. But we did not know what. We saw loads of material go in and workmen arrived by train, so the work must have been fairly extensive. But no local contractors or laborers were employed. And as nobody was permitted to pass his gates, there were no reports about what he was doing. Not that we were interested especially, but in Port Franklin, everybody knows about everybody else. And if you build a new hen coop, it is news. So we all resented Mr. Harpman and hoped he would not like our countryside. One rather curious thing we did see on an afternoon when the three of us rode some of John's saddle horses across country. We'd ridden along the dirt road that tops the low hills west of the bay and cut through the gate of old Oscar Bemis's orchard to the lowlands beyond. In the orchard, we stopped to rest and let the nags nibble the long grass when... Off to our right, and close to the boundary line of Hartman's land, we saw a young man. He was not aware of our presence, because we were above him, concealed by the old apple trees and a hundred and fifty yards away. What's he up to? Nell asked. We watched him idly, 
and then became more interested as he climbed into the branches of an oak and settled himself in a crotch. It was then we saw that he had binoculars swung over his shoulders. He took these out and commenced to peer at something taking place on the Hartman land. Now what? demanded John. Do you think of that? A slight touch of spine. Should we do anything about it? I asked. Not a thing, Nell said firmly. If Mr. Hartman wants privacy, let him take his own precautions. All the same, John said. I don't like it. It isn't the sort of thing we want going on around here. Always conservative, jeered Nell, who knew as well as I that conservatism was far from being one of John's attributes. So we rode along, speculating about the spy, but making no effort to identify him or to drive him away. Hartman had taken pains to show us he did not want to be a neighbor, so why should we be neighborly? True, it might be some prowler planning a job of burglary, but if so, our attitude toward the matter was more power to him. We walked our horses down to the shore and rode along the beach, crossing the foot of the Harpman land below high watermark, so as to be guiltless of trespass. Inland we could hear the sound of saws and hammers, but the construction, whatever it was, was hidden from us by the trees. How's the job coming? John asked idly. Mostly dust and sorting up to now, I told him. No horse thieves or second-story men among the Sandy's ancestors? He asked. Have patience, Nell said. Tiny'll dig some up. I did not answer this raillery, because I was more than a little troubled by some old letters I had found. I was wondering what to do about them, for I was working for John's father, at least temporarily, while I was waiting for myself to become wholly mended. We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from Double Treasure. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.